This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So the title for tonight's lecture is called To Respect Oneself as a Creature, Part 2, Being in Process, Never Arriving in the Elusiveness of Closure. And the title of this talk, and maybe a couple more, uh, come from a poem uh, entitled Healing by writer, tobacco farmer, and conservationist Wendell Berry. You can find it at the uh, outset of a collection of essays called What Are People For? It's covering the the people part right there, and it's one of those longer multi-page poems. Um, But I'm just going to read a few lines from it, um, because I think it sets well what I'm uh, wanting to do in these series of talks. So he says this, The task of healing is to respect oneself as a creature, no more and no less. A creature is not a creator and cannot be. There's only one creation and we are its members. Uh, He says quite a bit more in the poem, but I like how Barry frames this matter of that we're creatures, and I find his way of putting it inviting and intriguing, that knowing and embracing our creatureliness, respecting ourselves as creatures, members of the one creation, is part of the path to flourishing and healing. So uh, these talks are meant to be a reflection on this overlooked aspect of our existence, that we're creatures, and that this is a deeply good thing. We belong to the creaturely side of the great divide between God and all that is not God, Uh, and that is by God's good and kind intention. And so in this lecture, this talk in particular, I want to push back on two common habits of thought that I am becoming more and more convinced are not helping us in this task of respecting ourselves as creatures, and so can work against our healing or our flourishing. And the first is a common assumption that God primarily delights in finished products, and he merely puts up with us while we are in process. So the first is the common assumption that God primarily delights in finished products and merely puts up with us while we are still in process. And I just wonder if this actually just mirrors the way we think about our own lives. Uh, Often we work under the impression that some manner of arrival is waiting for us up the road, a better job, some developmental threshold, a weight loss goal, a degree, a raise, becoming a homeowner, becoming a parent or a spouse. Um, Or it could be a spiritual matter, like, having read the whole Bible or had some spiritual experience that others have already had or actually living into the rule of life that we've given ourselves. Whatever it is, our assumption is that once we get there, we'll have arrived and God will be pleased with us. Um, The second common habit of thought, uh, which will, I think, maybe get a little more attention, um, has many sources. 
uh, but our struggle with being creatures in process, struggling with uh, not arriving, certainly contributes to this. And it's the matter of finding closure. Well, I'm not going to go so far as to say that closure is an impossible fiction. I'm tempted to, and many of the people I've read uh, claim it is. Uh, it, It functions in common discourse as an unrealistic, unfair, yet ambiguously defined emotional state that is somehow necessary. It's imperative for us to find this if we're ever going to move through or deal with whatever pain we have in our lives. I think this is untrue and just very unfair. And so that's where I want to go tonight. As creatures made in the image of a good and kind God, it's part of his design that we are in process. We're always on the way. And being creatures who are in process, I think we can be freed from the burden of needing to find closure in order to heal from the many difficult matters that characterize our life. So I'm going to start with being in process and never arriving. I have um, a very distinct memory of coming to the end of my high school years and feeling a profound sense of dissatisfaction with myself. Uh, looking back, there are plenty of reasons for me having uh, for me to be disappointed with myself. I spent most of high school with a bowl cut. Uh, that could have been one of them. Uh, but the one in particular I, I think of tonight was somewhere along the way I came under the impression, I don't think anyone told me this explicitly, that by the time I graduate and have been accepted to college and know the future trajectory of my life, I would have arrived. I would have figured myself out. I know it sounds ridiculous now to think a senior in high school would know themselves, uh, but I had this sense that by that point, I'll know myself. I'll know what I like. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'll do with the rest of my life. I'll be comfortable in my own skin for once. And I, as I was on the cusp of crossing that threshold, I became painfully aware that I actually wasn't going to cross that threshold. I wasn't going to arrive. I felt like I was behind schedule, uh, and it seemed as though everyone else was further along in this process of figuring out these big things. So I figured, I told myself, perhaps it's not actually high school graduation, it's college graduation. But by the time I crossed that threshold, I was even more unsure about who I was, what was real, any of that stuff. So then I thought, oh, arrival must happen when I go out and see more of the world, when I backpack through Europe and get out. It did not happen then. So I thought, oh, maybe it's after uh, I go to grad school. Or maybe it's after I get married or get a decent job or have kids or own a home or have a certain amount of money in my retirement. And each time I came to these thresholds, and some of those I haven't actually come to yet, I just became more and more painfully aware that I hadn't arrived and I wasn't about to. Yet I continued to believe, or maybe better yet, hope, uh, that my elusive arrival or of some sort of another was actually at the following juncture, was at the next marker. And each time I reached out my hand to grab it, I thought I had it, and it would slip through my fingers and scurry further on down the road. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Can anyone relate to anything like that? Or maybe you've had a season where you felt you have arrived. You've established yourself, you're in the zone, you're feeling flow a lot, but then something happens and life kind of falls apart. 
the experience of feeling like you're behind schedule, of knowing you haven't arrived, of not being where we want to be or thought we should be, um, or even falling off after we thought we arrived, all these can be real sources of shame. There are implicit and explicit narratives about when we should arrive, when we should come into our own and settle into ourselves and to our work in this world. And a similar dynamic, I think, can be operational in our life with God. I can't imagine I'm the only person who has thought to myself or frustratingly said out loud in prayer, Lord, why don't you just change me into what you would have me be? Why is this so slow? Why is my growth so indecipherable to me? Why am I still so self-absorbed? I still struggle with insecurity and many besetting sins. Shouldn't I be doing more? Shouldn't I be more? Shouldn't I know more about all this stuff? Uh, Kelly Capick, who is a Presbyterian theologian, and um, I don't often like reading Presbyterian theologians, but I really enjoyed (laughs) reading this one. So I I think it's quite a lovely book. I, I recommend it. Uh, in this lovely book called You're Only Human, he points out that for some reason we tend to associate God's good work with finished products, with arriving. But that is not what we find in Scripture. So consider the first pages of the Bible, its glorious account of the creation of the world. Long before the rise of evolutionary accounts of the universe, Christians and Jews debated on the how and the when of the creation that Genesis depicts. They disagreed on how particular, um, um, uh, how to read particular passages of it, but then even since the arrival of evolutionary accounts, people argue prim- uh, with this text or think this text is mostly speaking or exclusively thinking or speaking about origins, uh, which I think is an important conversation to have. It's just not the one that I'm interested in. Uh, this evening. And Capic notes that regardless of what side or what position one takes on the origins debate, all sides, and then now this is him, recognize something wondrous about God that I think has some underutilized truth for our life with God. They all agree that he took his time. So the process, and not just the finished product, matter to God. In Genesis, we read of a joyful creator who does not simply delight in the finished product, but he revels all throughout this glorious process of creating the world. God pauses after each day and recognizes his ongoing and unfinished work as good. Uh, and this word good in Hebrew, tov, is as much an aesthetical word, uh, an aesthetic, uh, aesthetical word, an appraisal that maybe an artist would give to a piece of art that he loves, or that someone would would uh, would would call uh, shade in the sun or warm bread straight from the oven. Things are deeply good, as much as it's a moral pronouncement on the nature of the world. Caput goes on to say, "This has everything to do with our lives. From the beginning, even before sin was an issue, God affirmed and utilized the movement of time." including the value of development and growth. Part of the goodness of his finite creation is that the infinite God doesn't rush when he works. He values process. 
Capic goes on and he reminds us this is because God's highest value is not efficiency or productivity, but is love. He's more interested in beauty than speed of process. And I quite like this. This just doesn't, this next part, it just doesn't sound like what I think of Presbyterians. And no offense to Presbyterians. I, I love Presbyterians. Um, some of my best friends. Yeah, yeah, some <laughs> But he says this. He says this about God. He says, He is more concerned to lift our gaze, to provoke song, to stimulate imaginations, than he is in just getting things done. God is not wasteful or negligent but purposeful and wise, patient and intentional as he works. And of course, as we read on in the Bible, we're going to find many times where God works instantly. Water to wine, Lazarus raised from the dead. But often he's compelled by love rather than mere production. And he takes slower routes and seems to enjoy taking those slower routes. Exoduses normally take time. They call for faith and growth. Process has always been his normal pattern. This is Capic again. Rather than snapping his fingers, the Father, through his word, sends the Spirit over the darkness, hovering above turbulent waters, while beginning to bring order out of emptiness and void. We see something, too, of this embrace of process, of, of not totally arriving, of, of moving through stages of development, which are part and parcel of being human. We see this in the life of Jesus, in the mystery of the incarnation, the word who was God and was with God, who was with God in the beginning and whom was light and life. This word became flesh and went through puberty. Jesus doesn't drop out of heaven ready to die on a cross. If incarnation is only or primarily about his atoning death, then it was profoundly inefficient. Why not just have a sinless baby die if that's the whole point of Jesus? Why all those years of growth, development, and a simple, normal life that actually remains quite hidden from us? It's not what the Gospels recount. Luke's Gospel uses wonderful words to speak of these hidden years of Jesus' life. He speaks of them as ones of growth, of increase, of development. These are words of process. Just like those same years were years of growth, increase, development, and process in our own. And we can see the same dynamic ringing in the words of the Apostle Paul in many places. I just chose one, Philippians 3. Being in process, never arriving. Uh, He says this. Uh, he's speaking about the resurrection and he goes on and says not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect but I press on to make it my own but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and he says let those who are mature think this way so if you're mature you realize you haven't arrived You haven't gotten there. You still have to press on. And so as ridiculous or as cliche uh, it might sound, so much of our life with God is about the journey we take with God. The process of working with God's grace to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. 
this is a painful thing and this is a slow process. But think, I love how Paul puts it in Galatians 4.19 where he speaks about Christ being formed in us. This takes time. This doesn't happen instantaneously. And this is part of God's good design. So, so much of the Christian life is not just about getting into some place where all our doctrinal ducks are in a row, uh, but it's allowing God to meet us where we actually are in the lifelong, and I think eternally long process of having Christ formed in us, in the actual lives that we are living. Now, last term, Esther gave a really great lecture uh, on imagination, and there was a rich discussion afterwards where we talked uh, around the power of metaphors, the nature of metaphors, and how certain metaphors can kind of control how we think um, about about various things. And in the discussion, there was a young woman from her church named Emily who said something that I found to be super on point. I've actually been mulling it over for for a few months, and I went back and re-listened to the lecture and took notes on her comment and the lecture, which was very, which is a great lecture as well. Uh, but she said this. She said this. Uh, she said, I think, frankly, for a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals, a lot of Americans, and especially the intersection of all three, the point of existence is to be right. So the point of being a Christian is to believe all the right things, to have all the theology nailed down, to do all the things we're supposed to do, to say all the things we're supposed to say, to be seen saying all the things we're supposed to. She goes on to say, I'm not entirely sure where I'm going with this, but I'm probably thinking about this because mid-year reviews are coming up. I think a lot of us think about our walk with God less like a road trip and more like a job. That there are performance metrics we have to hit, that there are deliverables, that there are criteria, and if we're not doing it right, we could stand to lose everything. So she just sort of extemporaneously said that. I thought it was very articulate. But this idea of a road trip with God, being on process going somewhere, this resonates throughout the Christian tradition uh, that has taken images of pilgrimage from the Psalms and understood our life in this world as one of going on a road trip with God, so to say. It was so, I thought it was so lovely. And so, since we are creatures who are made for process, part of navigating life in a fallen world means we deal with sorrow and grief and pain. And one of our cultural assumptions about grief and pain can intentionally, uh, or unintentionally, work against respecting ourselves as a creature. Uh, and what, I, what I'm talking about here, I'm transitioning into thinking about this concept of finding closure, the quest of finding closure. And I want to be clear uh, as I move into this that I think it is very hard to be a human being. Uh, it is difficult also to know exactly what we're supposed to do with our pain and the disappointment that at times can overwhelm us and sort of surprisingly come back and feel like we're haunted by it. I am no expert on grief or how people heal from the pain they have experienced. So if what I'm about to say contradicts your own experience, I I really welcome uh, you to tell me so afterwards, to challenge me, or just tell me about it. Because I I do want to just say I have a lot to learn about this whole thing. But I do want to say that I've become highly dubious 
about the concept of closure, coming to a place of finality uh, in regards to dealing with pain or hurt that we have. And as pervasive of a concept uh, as this is, I don't think it's a helpful or very human goal for us human beings who are trying to figure out what to do with the pain and disappointment we have. So I admit that I have assumed closure most of my life. I just assumed closure to sort of be the goal of grief or sadness, coming to the end of it. And it changed somewhat recently, maybe maybe five years ago. I was reading a book um, by a counselor, a Christian counselor, a man named David Pallison. Um, and the book is called Good and Angry. Uh, and the subtitle is Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness. Um, and in a chapter that's called I'll Never Get Over This, uh, I was confronted. It's made me rethink, rethink the whole, the whole situation of closure. So, Pallison says the following. He writes, perhaps you've heard someone say or have said yourself some variation of these words. I'll never get over it. What happened to me was so wrong. I hurt so much. I've been scarred so deeply by sheer wrongness, betrayal, cruelty, and brutality. My reactions are confused and tangled. My anger is raging like a nuclear furnace inside of me. It seems permanent, destructive, and as deep as the hurt. Now, I was expecting a counselor as skilled and as experienced as this man, David Pallison, who I actually think is also a Presbyterian. Uh, and at the point of writing this book, he, he has since passed away, but he, uh, he has nearly 30 years of experience working with people. I just assumed, I was expecting for him to uh, provide some insightful, pithy challenge to this sort of pessimism. But to my surprise, what he said was this, you're right. You will never get over it. I was initially surprised by this. I have uh, and had imbibed a cultural script that the goal of grief was to find closure. uh, To find closure for it. So one could move on and leave it behind. But here was someone who I don't actually always agree with, but who I always find to be wise, gentle, humane, and informed by scripture. And he offered a very simple response that, kind of unsettled me. And there was a real generosity to sort of the rest of the chapter. So unbeknownst to myself, I began to question the concept of culture as a necessary culminating stage or to reach in our process of dealing with pain. And the more time I spend with guests here at Labrie who are navigating tremendous heartache and loss, my questioning of, of, of closure as a concept has turned into pretty significant suspicion. I, I think Pallison's right. And to be clear, Pallison is not saying we need to only stay in places of overwhelming grief, or we could never get through it. But he is questioning the neat and tidy cultural narrative that says the goal of our grief is to find closure for it, hermetically seal it off from our present. He writes this, A human being is not meant to deal with terrible wrong by having it simply washed away. So you don't have to chase an impossibility. You don't have to um, anesthetize yourself with various substances and activities. 
You don't need to feel like a failure because you're not happy and smiley all the time. If you aren't expecting to find some magic that will leave you unmarked, then you can get down to working through your painful experience. He puts his finger on something there. That demanding one fine closure can possibly inhibit the work, the important work, of working through our painful experiences. It's not that there is no end to pain and to grief. There can be. Uh, It's just that we don't need a definitive closure to get there, to heal. More recently, I've been informed by and really appreciate the work of... um, uh, philosophy, or sorry, a professor and sociologist named Nancy Burns in her book, Closure, The Rush to End Grief and What It Costs Us. She also has a great TED Talk on this that's called Beyond Closure, uh, I believe. Um, and uh, I don't think she's a Presbyterian, for those keeping track of my Presbyterian sources. Um, she provides a cultural history, actually, of the idea of closure pointing out that it is a relatively new one. Um, and she brought, she articulated concerns and reservations that I had about the concept, but actually wasn't really sure how to say or put my finger on. In her TED Talk, which is, which is worth watching, Michaela is the one who told me about it, um, she does a simple exercise that illustrates what I see as a problem with the common way that closure talk tends to work. And she has us think of literal spaces. So you can say, over here we have a space of joy. This is the joy space. And whatever has brought you joy or brings you joy, that's what's in this space uh, over here. Joy space. But over here, we have the space of grief. The space of loss. And there's lots of things we can legitimately grieve about uh, in our life. Small things, large things. Um, but we enter into this sort of painful space and we immediately want to get back to the space of joy. Uh, how do we? How do we move from one to the other? Well, closure discourse says we wrap up our pain and our grief. We put it in a box and we leave it here because it's going to be much easier to get back to the place of joy if we don't have it with us. And if we have it with us, we might turn the place of joy into the place of sadness and grief. And this sounds appealing and simple enough, that is, unless we ourselves are in the place of grief. Sometimes grief is so overwhelming that it's nearly impossible to look out and see a place of joy, to remember what was part of a place of joy. And while we're in the place of grief, Perhaps another well-meaning but misguided friend invites us to come back to the place of joy and reminds us that before we can come over to the place of joy, we just need to put all our pain in a box and leave it there so we can come back to the place of joy. Now, again, one can understand the appeal of closure as a place of emotional finality, especially for difficult emotions that's sealed off. Um, from uh, a place of grief. And being in the place of joy is just so much better than being in the place of grief. The problem is, and um, Burns articulates this very well, this just isn't true to reality. This isn't how human beings work. This isn't how emotions work. 
It's not the case that our emotions or that ourselves can be easily divided and sealed off. Good from bad, bad from good, joy from grief, grief from joy. It's not as though we can only be in one and we have to turn our back and not look at the other. It sounds simple enough. You're in one or the other. It's just not true to the reality of being human. Because the truth is, we can feel more than one feeling at once. We're actually quite complex creatures. And people of faith, people of biblical faith that read the Psalms, have many, many instances where grief and joy sit right on top of, or next to each other, or alongside one another. Uh, We're much more complex and messy creatures, and we can carry both at the same time. So again, we can feel more than one thing at a time. So sometimes the winding and unpredictable path of grief moves us from a place of sorrow to joy, but we find ourselves back in a place of sorrow. It's not a linear path. We close it, we leave it, we move to the other, never to go back. Grief can bring us back to that place. And this is not a failure, uh, because uh, this is not a failure to find yourself back in a place of sorrow. It's part of being a creature whose existence is a process, is a journey, who are on pilgrimage. So I think language of closure can create confusion uh, and give a false hope for people who are experiencing loss, who assume there were places of grief and places of joy, and maybe that they had permanently left the place of grief and found closure. But so often we need time and space to grieve, and grief doesn't follow a direct linear path or order. It's often ambiguous. So it's actually sometimes hard to know when we're in the place of grief, what's the shape of this grief that I have? Like, what sort of box would I need to put this grief in anyway? Grief is complex, it can be long-term, and it doesn't need to be rushed, no matter how much we want to get back to the supposed place of joy. So, uh, Anglican priest, New York Times columnist, I should have brought a book over, I forgot, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, Uh, in her book, A Prayer in the Night, which if you haven't bought, take out your phone and buy it right now. It is a great, a great read. She writes this about, about grief. Certainly there are particular seasons of grief. Grief is in part a response to acute loss in our life. There are times of mourning, but the way I've come to understand grief has changed. I've come to see grief as a part of the everyday experience of being human in a world that is both good and cruel. In this sense, grief is constant for us. It is a real and right response to our vulnerability. Feeling sadness is the cost of being emotionally alive. It's the cost even of holiness. Christians have to let ourselves be people who mourn. It's part of the deal. It's a defining characteristic of those Jesus called blessed. And again, it's a real, it's a very excellent book, Prayer in the Night. My concern is that many of us have come to believe that closure must be found for us to move forward. Closure has come to be loaded also with a set of expectations for how one should respond to grief. And if people believe that they need closure in order to heal, but can't find it, or find that they keep sliding back into a place of grief, as though it has some sort of gravitational pull to it, they might come to believe that something is wrong with them, 
in their process of grief, that they're failing at grief, which only adds a level of shame or a layer of shame and pain to what they're already going through. This leads to further isolation, and it's just not good. But it hasn't always been this way. So again, in her book, Closure, Nancy Burns points out that the concept of closure has slowly creeped into American mainstream culture since the 1960s. And it was in the 1990s in particular, the generation that I was mostly, I like went through puberty and uh, emerged into adulthood in, uh, that this idea of closure really took hold culturally. Now the exact origins of the word aren't clear, but it's interesting that the earliest use we, we know of it uh, in psychology came in 1923 from a Czech psychologist, uh, Max Wertheimer. I don't know if he's Presbyterian either. Uh, but he used this concept to explain how our brains group objects together as a whole rather than as individual parts. A mind fills in missing information uh, to complete an image. So it's moved pretty far away from its original use. It was describing a mental process, and now it is it's sort of a necessary emotional state to move through grief. And the story of how the concept crept from one realm of psychology into another is interesting, and it's, it's quite detailed in her book, and maybe it's for another evening. But as the case with many concepts that creep from one intended use to another... An exact definition is pretty hard to pin down. People mean rather different things when talking about closure. Some find it through forgiveness. Others find it through vengeance. Some through erecting a memorial. Some through forgetting whatever happened to them. I've been talking for a little while about closure, and I actually haven't defined it at all. But I think we all have a sense of, of, of what it is. Uh... That said, the shape that it takes regarding the different uses of it often shifts. So Byrne lists some of the events which lead to public calls for finding closure. So this is some of her list. From bad relationships to terrorist attacks, the concept of closure enters the cultural debate about how to respond when traumatic things happen. School children are told to find closure after a shooting. The nation seeks closure after September 11th. Mourners search for closure after a shooting, and family members want it after a homicide. Families of missing persons search for closure, as do victims of natural disasters. People are told to find closure after their pets die. Closure is sought after divorces, bad dates, abortions, adoptions, and abusive experiences. The difficulty is that while hoping to find closure from any of these painful and awful experiences... The hope of some sort of ending, a finality to suffering and grief. There's no agreed upon answer as to what exactly closure is. She goes on. Uh, this is, this is her note. It has been described as justice, peace, healing, acceptance, forgiveness, moving on, resolution, answered questions, and even revenge. And the ways to find it are incredibly varied. People find closure by planting trees, acquiring memorial tattoos, forgiving murderers, or watching murderers die, talking to offenders, writing letters, burning letters, burning wedding dresses, buying, burying wedding rings, casting spells, taking trips to Hawaii, buying expensive pet urns, committing suicide, talking to dead people, reviewing autopsies, or planning funerals. 
I can deeply sympathize with the desire to do whatever it takes to shorten the length of time it takes for the hard edges of grief to soften. But it has to be said that we live in a society that is profoundly uneasy and uncomfortable with pain and suffering, and one that desires a tidy, resolved, quick path out of it that we don't have to look back on. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, goes so far as to say that we, in our progressive, secular, humanist, post-Christian society, are most likely the least equipped culture in human history to know how to name and move through grief and suffering. Uh, it's because it's even like in the, the name progressive. We're just moving forward. We're just moving on. We're just progressing. And every society, at least implicitly, provides what Burns calls feeling rules, informal guidelines that tell us how we should react to certain situations. Societies and institutions have different sorts of feeling rules, and they're moving targets. But people are more or less expected to meet them, abide by them, so that one set of feeling rules is dominant in a culture it's difficult for us to imagine other ways of handling a situation. The imperative need to find closure has become one of our feeling rules, if for no other reason than we're deeply uneasy and uncomfortable with pain. I want to circle back to Paulison's insight that looking for a definitive end to our pain, leaving uh, leaving it in the place of grief, actually might inhibit the important process of working through our pain. Uh, Again, Tish Harrison Warren's book, A Prayer in the Night, is a great read. And her writing on grief is quite insightful. But it acts also, it does many things. But one of the things she does is she warns those who are maybe um, understandably tempted to prioritize finding closure, but to do so at the, the... the expense of actually addressing the pain we want to bring closure to, she she writes the following thing, and it's, it's a warning. She says this, Buried grief will always demand a hearing. We do not make time for grief. It will not simply disappear. Grief is stubborn. It will make itself heard, or we will die trying to silence it. If we don't face it directly, it comes out sideways, in ways that aren't recognizable as grief. Explosive anger, uncontrollable anxiety, compulsive shallowness, brooding bitterness, unchecked addiction. Grief is a ghost that can't be put to rest until its purpose has been fulfilled. It's quite a line. And figuring out grief's purpose is really, in in our own lives, is, is something that's sort of beyond the scope of tonight's lecture. Really any lecture, I think it's something that comes out more in conversation and in prayer. Uh, um, But if you're struggling in a quest to gain or find closure, uh, perhaps its purpose just hasn't been fulfilled yet. There's still something that your grief is telling you that you need to learn from. And the work of kind of working through our grief and our pain um, will lead us to a place most likely, well, it still might hurt but it maybe won't hurt as much as it as it once did. And I like how Pallison puts it here. He says, yes, the experience will always be there, but you don't need to be forever defined by what happened. You won't forget 
that you do not need to endlessly revisit what happened. You do not need to be imprisoned by your reactions. In fact, you would be untrue to your humanity if you simply got over it. A significant experience will mark you for life. It should mark you. But the pain and the hatred and despair do not need to remain a running sore infected by rage, mistrust, and callousness. There is a way to go through it and come out in a good place. So there's so much um, more to say about both of these things, about the nature of being a creature that are all, we're always on the way. We are always creatures in process. And that's part of our design. That is how God's made us. That's not a, a flaw. And part of the part of our being in process is mean we're processing the pain and the grief that we have. And maybe we don't actually find closure before we reach healing, before we can be in proximity to the pain of our past without it controlling us. Um, and so... I think, if I'm honest, I don't really know how to end this lecture. Um, And as one that is about process and about not finding exact closure and definitiveness, maybe that is okay, uh, where the the form matches the content um, and not coming to a neat and tidy conclusion. But those are those are sort of those are my my thoughts uh, on 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 this matter. And I know it's touched on. yeah, potentially um, places that are 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 I don't know deep or important. Uh, so again, we'll move into a time of conversation uh, discussion. You're free to ask any question. You're also free to get another cookie or some more tea, or move on uh, with your evening. But we'll stay here as long yeah, as you'd like, Peter. Uh, two, two, two things were running through my mind throughout this whole thing. One is uh, as Modern American culture doesn't have rites of passage. Yeah, it, we no longer have like a formal time of mourning. Yeah, something that's publicly available. Yeah, which I don't think was ever intended to say, okay, the year's up. <coughs> yeah, but it 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 keeps it it makes what we now feel as though we have to hide public, mm-hmm. and people can then interact with us. Accordingly, yeah. uh, so uh, I, I think that's something that just is. I mean, it is what it is. But 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 I, but I think it, it. We try, as you were pointing out, we try to mask things. Yeah. And, and the other thing that came to mind, of course, was uh, <clears throat> at the end of uh, Lord of the Rings, and Frodo and others go off to the to the western lands or wherever, and uh, and you get a sense that they're just. Diminished, you know. They, they don't leave happy. Uh, they they leave as though okay, something has happened, and the, and the pain and the hurt and the cut are going to go with us. Uh, and even Sam and uh, Pippin and others, you get a sense that their lives also, while somewhat redeemed, are still scarred. Yeah. And, and yet that adds to the, if you will, without romanticizing it, sort of the nobility of yeah. the uh, of what it is they did. And uh, so, so yes, I think that notion of journey and 
being asymptotic, you know, you're always approaching, but never quite arriving is, uh, is something that we, we just need to live with. What is the word you just used? Asymptotic? Asymptotic. I don't know. And, and asymptote is sort of a, a line that always approaches like another line, but yeah. never touches it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah. Ben? Yeah. I just, um, I'm wondering whether there's a distinction to be made between, like, um, our, fall, our, our fallenness and our, our sinfulness, and then just our creativeness, which is being limited. So, there's, there's being limited is a pre-fallen reality. I think that Adam and Eve would have, if the fall hadn't occurred, would have <coughs> continued to grow yeah. and learn and know God better, not because they were, were sinners, but because they were creatures of limited. Yeah. Um, <coughs> It seems to be we're in a state now where we're in process in both ways. We're in process because yeah. we're limited and we're growing. None of us were born adults. Yeah. None of us were born knowing the things we're supposed to know. You know. But also we're just broken and sinful and, and yeah. we're trying to become like Christ because there's actually something wrong with us. Um, I'm just wondering whether we can, looking towards the future, like hope that we have as Christians, whether there is, obviously the word closure is problematic, but in terms of our sinful nature, yeah, and and even Paul in Philippians three talking about like he, he's, it's not that it's like oh it's all about the journey you'll never get there. He said no, I will one day be like Christ. Yeah. It's not going to happen in this life, but I actually am going to get there because of mm-hmm. God's mercy and, and God will change change us. So there is a sense of some concrete resolution there in terms of our sinfulness but maybe still not in terms of our creatures maybe we still continue to grow forever for all eternity in in understanding and knowing God more and more Um, and I have I have zero problem with like (coughs) a notion that we're we're always going to be in process in that sense yeah yeah but I have more of a problem saying that we're always going to be in process in terms of just conquering our sin. Yeah, yeah. That's something that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Come to an end. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I don't know if that's no. That makes no, and it's a good. It's a good distinction. And um, uh, yeah, no. I think it's. I think it's actually quite a good distinction, and uh, probably clarifies. <clears throat> yeah, some things well. Yeah, I um Yeah, I mean I I I like I like the distinction. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something to say. And, yeah. Yeah, and and there like yeah, I mean cuz part of No, I think I'll just leave it with I like the distinction, and I, I think it, I think it's actually very helpful. Um, yeah, yeah, Marty. This may be a possible question to answer, but in case you thought about it, I'm just wondering: in the new heavens and the new earth, when we when we are like Christ, and we no longer 
I mean, it's something that I, I, um, yeah, I mean, I do think there's something about the lang- John's language in Revelation about having all of our, all of our tears wiped away, uh, that I think means at least on the threshold of, you know, what, like the consummation of history, like tears are, tears about about suffering, about wrong, about pain are not illegitimate. Like, God is very much welcoming them. Yeah, and there's something about the language of the tr- the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations that I think, too, that speaks about it's not maybe just an instantaneous... Like I, 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 but I, I don't really... Um, I'd, I'd rather be... Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Agnostic yeah, uh, about it. Really yeah, no, it's it's not. I mean, I I um, I know there's lots of lots of people who are much smarter than me who make very clear pronouncements about what exactly the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think I'm just a little more reticent. Um, but I do think there's something about, um, and <clears throat> maybe this isn't the right place to go, but like, I think of also in Revelation in 4 and 5, where it's in the throne room, and there's this seal, there's this, this sealed scroll that's in the hand of the one, say, and it's like, this, this is sort of like how history makes this is like this, like okay, Revelation always making interpretive calls and and whatnot because it's so symbolic. But um, yeah, Jesus is the one who can take the scroll and who can open the scroll and can make sense of like all the things that make no sense that are so evil that are so awful. And so I think there is something to that. I don't know if I will understand everything um, to me that sort of feels I don't even know if that's totally appealing to me um, uh, if I'm honest but I, I, I do think, I do trust that that God is good uh, I mean part of this book by David Pallison, it's called Good and Angry because he's saying like God is good and he's angry at evil, he's angry at sin he's angry at injustice and he's going to do something about it. And you should be angry at these things too. And he's going to deal with it. And I think, 
I mean, that, so that is my, that's what, like one of my big hopes that there is a judge who will stand over all the absurdity and evil, evil and sin of human history and say, like, this was wrong and I'm gonna make it right. Uh, but I don't know what that process will look like or entail, but did you have your hand up, Sarah, while I was talking, or no? Francis, before Mary Francis speaks, if I don't know you, would you tell me your name if you have a question? Everyone so far has. I just don't know a number of people here. But yeah, go ahead, Mary Francis. Yeah. 
either way, if you stick with it and submit the question is, then, then, then what, what does it look like to hold that with the majority? And I think that's where it's just like these places in, the, in these pictures that we have in the Bible of, of Jesus weeping um, are really significant. Weeping, weeping with other people and weeping in solitude. Both of Yeah, it's just a couple of years old, I think. Old. Yeah. I don't know about the David Collins one, but I, I feel like there has been, yeah. not, not a sea change, but like a bit of yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, as you were reading this, is there, um, I don't know, is this a, a difference in theology? Like, like, is this maybe a development mm. in theology? Is this a cultural change? I'm just, I'm curious about, is this, yeah. is this actually evolving in the church, or is it just that I'm reading different layers? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. Um, I mean, the the dynamic um, that Mary Frances sort of named about either just like kind of burying it, or just sort of kind of obsessing about it. Like I, I see those not just. I see I see those like in broad brush church cultures like we're actually not going to talk about anything that's wrong or we're pretty much only going to talk about stuff that's wrong um uh yeah i i feel like i don't really have my finger on the pulse um well enough to to know um but i do i do think people i mean there's i i find closure very appealing um, as someone who's, you know, been hurt by people, I just want to, I have much more of the, like, just, it didn't really happen, I can move on, that's my propensity. Um, but yeah, no, I don't know, I, I don't know how to, like, adequately answer that. It is, I just think it's great there are people writing against it, I mean, I think it's just, 
it's such common relationship advice or sort of common sense or even I mean I've just I've thought a little while about using this in a, in a or do, talking about this in a lecture so I've just been like listening to to people and how often people kind of reference it um, either I got closure because of this or I want closure or even if they don't use the word closure um, it's it's that possibility of just sort of sealing things off here and moving on and never having to look at it. Um, yeah, Marty has her hand up. And yeah, I was going to say, I, I can't talk about church culture, but having been in the Brie for a very long time, having known the Shapers, I think in the Brie, I never heard the Shapers or experienced with the more of the culture, this idea of closure as a, as a Such a, yeah, yeah. But you can experience healing. Yeah, and yeah, I, I think that word substantial. I mean, we. Um, I, I think it's such a generous word. Like it yeah. just it it doesn't it doesn't make it kind of an all or nothing. Uh, like it's either God completely heals me or completely frees me of this, um, which is often like in a. Like very powerful experience, um, or it's or it's nothing. And I, I think sometimes there's anyway. I find that language of substantial to be really helpful. Yeah, could you tell me your name too? I'm Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thank you for that. That was a great lecture. I think the thing that comes to my mind um, just with this, it, it actually touches on a topic I've been sort of working through in my own life, and um, I feel like. It comes back to this issue of like, you know, like for me it was like forgiveness recently and like you think you've forgiven someone or a group of people and then you realize there's like another layer to go back of like, wow, there's a deeper level of forgiveness that I didn't realize I needed to have. And um, I just feel like with all of these things in this life that are so hard to go through, whether it's grief or people hurting us, it's like it kind of comes back to our trust in God, which is a gift, because mm-hmm. being able to, like, you know, have Him be able to turn to Him when we're hurting is a great gift, yeah. rather than hardening our hearts and saying, wow, God isn't there. And I, I feel like that's part of what helps us heal, is so we understand His character more. Um, just personally, I, that's what I feel, it's like, when you get into that place and you see more of God's 
goodness okay? mm-hmm. if he allows you to see it right like, mm-hmm. and so I like along with that topic of closure it's more like maybe the goal in our life when we go through hard things is to see him more clearly and to be able to trust him in that place yeah. I was thinking the life of Elizabeth Elliot and like how many difficult things she walked through and mm-hmm. how could she keep you know, how could you go back and minister to those people that had killed her husband? You know, oh. like, only by God's grace and the ability to see him or who he really is and be able to trust him in that hard time. Like, she probably never, I'm just guessing, but I imagine she still had hurt years later. Like, oh. how could they do that? How could yeah. they kill him, you know? Mm-hmm. But yet she was able to look at those people with love because of what Christ had done in her own heart. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's just an yeah. Yeah. No, and that your your first comment about forgiveness being something you have to return to over and over. It's sort of like forgiveness sometimes is like I forgive this person and I will for like I'm choosing to forgive them in the future when I when this when this returns to me when I find myself. I mean, again, I don't actually believe in the place of joy and the place of grief, but like I find myself in that place of resentment and reliving into that process and yeah my Sarah and my wife Sarah and I have been talking about this and she made a really insightful thing about her comment about herself like sometimes holding on to a hurt or a pain is because we like want to understand it and we think eventually we'll understand it and we'll know why the person did this or what the situation was and sometimes it's like well I don't think we're ever going to get that but it's like we don't need that to forgive uh which i mean doesn't make i mean it just speaks to sort of how hard uh, forgiveness can be uh as a process but that uh being able to you know trust that maybe if you as we forgive even if we don't get that understanding of why whatever hurt happened to us hurt uh it can still free us it can still give us a sense of at least incremental freedom of moving away from that pain and not sort of staying stuck in it and living in it. And I just saw that contrast between needing to understand or wanting to understand all the dynamics, which, you know, it's really, un- really understandable. Um, and, um, <clears throat> yeah, or, yeah, do you want to say, say that better? Since you said, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You summarized me well. Thank you. But, yeah. um, I was just going to say, I think, I guess, two thoughts. Like, one is that I think it's really important, especially Mary Francis, like your two things, like when it comes to do with relational things that are, that, that, that need a little letting go and are struggling with that, and there's not sort of a clear, so-and-so sinned against so-and-so or I sinned against you in this way like, and it's murky I think to go on to go on that inner journey of like what do I mean when I say closure mm-hmm. um, because I think like you said that's a kind of a stand-in for any number of things that we're seeking and for me recently it's like I'm trying to understand something <laughs> I can't make sense of it in my head and, um, but yeah, to, to realize like, oh, so I had actually 
not giving myself the path forward of forgiveness as an option. Because, oh, there's not this, I sin against you in this way, and you sin against me in this way. Like, I couldn't name those things. Like, they, they weren't there to name, clearly. And yet, political forgiveness is also something we can, we can simply say, like, this hurt. Yeah. I was hurt. And I hurt you. And I forget. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah. So I guess that's what I just add to that. Yeah. And there's, um, just going back to your, your comment, Amanda, I don't know Elizabeth Elliot's story super well or anything. Um, but yeah, that, to forgive enables freedom then, like, to love. Like, it, it allows, it doesn't determine the, the na- like, it actually empowers you and opens you up to, for God to, to meet you there and then to actually love someone and not just be like, well, they've hurt me, that's all that there is. There's like, Forgiveness allows for creativity. It allows for new engagement. It allows for love. And your comment about it being something to return to, I just think needs to be said time and again. Like that needs to be repeated a lot because I was quite further. I was quite far along in life before I was first told like forgiveness is not just a one. Like you have to keep doing. It. I was like, oh, I'm the worst forgiver because I can't. It doesn't stick. I need to. Um, <laughs> But then being like, yeah, like it, it is, it's a process. It's something you commit to uh, by God's grace. And Sarah, and then Nikayla, just right up. Yeah. I just wanted to make maybe more yeah. to what Ben said earlier about the relationship between our finances and, and our yeah. sinfulness. And I, I do wonder in, in certain cases, like when I'm thinking of myself, I sort of vaguely too like, I wonder if some of the prolonged nature of the, the grief, the struggle, is because my sin is tangled up in that. And so, like, there is a, a refining process that is happening if I let it. <laughs> and so, some of, like, some of what has been helpful is to be like, oh, I was taking responsibility for things, for compulsive things. That aren't mine to take responsibility for. That's sin at work in me, like in this dynamic. And I think, had I just sort of like closure quickly and easily, I don't know if I would have realized that about myself. And and then to see like, oh, that sort of opens up, a, yeah, a way forward in so many other different areas. And like, well, I see that at work in me. Lots of things that need reduction and change. So, yeah, I think. Yeah, Michaela, did you want? Um, yeah, I, I for a long time really loved the idea of closure. That you know, there's something we can do to yeah. make it go away. Um, <laughs> and I think for a long time, just looking at lots of things, be like, just make it go away, just make it go away. And uh, a few years ago, I was in a book club, and we read Till We Have Faces, and there's this line that was really captivating that said, um, nothing is yet in its fullest form. Mm. And 
the idea of our grief is not in its fullest form, yeah. our memory is not in its fullest form, okay. the way in which we live is not yet in its fullest form, and this idea that we are promised that one day we will be
there is the supernatural aspect of the Lord being so big that, like, A, he's infinitely patient with us, and B, he wants to take all those things from us. Yeah. We can actually hand them over to him. And that's where I think that that's where a lot of the healing comes. Not forgetting, not, like, shoving it away, but just healing, and then being able to then use it to help someone else heal. Yeah. I think, yeah. That's like, oh, that's supernatural, right? Because we can't do it in our own power, in our own strength. Yeah. We can't think it, we can't think it, we can't counsel that out of something, you know? It's only in our relationship with Him. But, yeah. Yeah, and, um, yeah, thank you for that, Melissa. And, and the, uh, the chapter in the Pallison book about, like, will I ever get over this? Like, he's, he walks through, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and Solzhenitsyn's life and someone else and said like they never denied uh, the pain that they felt or the suffer the unjust suffering they they dealt with they didn't yeah and it did, like but they were met by God and experienced healing but like they the pain they suffered still marked how they moved forward with the rest of their life and and even for that for you know in some sense became a vocation and so yeah just what you were saying about about that was yeah very much in line yeah. Yeah. Hi, yeah. Um, I, yeah just to piggyback on that so I'm a therapist Christian therapist and this closing accounts is the work I do so and I do frame it that way because I like that as an analogy um, I agree we cannot go on with certain we can go on, but we go on with much trouble if we don't seek with the Lord to settle some of our accounts. And I was thinking also so much of Isaiah, the same scripture about setting the captives free and driving With him, we can do that. And it isn't a denial of what happens, not at all. But it's having, he supernaturally gives you Yeah, it's that's from Tish Harrison Warren. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that. 
Thank you. It is better to go to a funeral than to a party. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And sorrow is better than laughter. And sadness has a good influence. So that is very profound. And so the process is actually so critical. And we, we can't rush it. But there is a point at which we will be very quiet. So God can give us closure on that. And the dreams have played a powerful part in my life. Um, I have profound dreams, and I had closure in my mind, even as recent as it was. Um, not closure, but so much peace regarding my brother's premature death as a result of the dream. Um, and also of our dog, one of our dogs. And the dream really brought great healing to it. So I think it can permit our lifetimes some measure of closure, again, not denial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But closure and peace through the world supernaturally in various ways. Yeah. So it is important to close them out. And we can with Jesus. We really can. Yeah, it, it does. It does. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I'm just wondering whether. <laughs> Were, I guess one of the themes for me about this lecture is really, really helpful. You know, um, like you said many times, the word closure is so undefined. Yeah. And what, what, what's, what, why is it problematic? To, to me, hearing what you just said, to me, I would say, well, that's substantial humor. And I'm less comfortable using the word closure because of everything it could imply. But it's ambiguous. It implies that there's an absolute point in time. Yeah. It's like a book is open, now it's closed. Yeah. Like as if it's like a clean break. Um, no, no yeah. uh, residual yeah. pain or anything. It also implies that it's complete. Yeah. Uh, it implies that there may be a technique to achieve it. Mm. Um, that should work for everybody. It implies mm. a timetable. Yeah. <laughs> And all, all of those are the things which are so destructive. And we, you know, we can still argue for, we can still believe in and work towards like movement mm-hmm. in grief. Yeah. Like move, movement towards substantial <coughs> healing without this notion that <coughs> there's this fixed point in time in which everything will be solved. <laughs> that yeah. is just so unreal to, to and, and it's, and it's not that that really profound healing doesn't happen for some people. It does. Like you're I mean, I believe <laughs> But it's also to hold that as a norm or, or, or to somehow codify that as a technique that everybody can experience. It just isn't promised, though. Um, but some some movement towards healing, I think, really is. And, and I think that that's what's really... Um, those are some of the ways which the word closure is just is a hard one for me. Uh, for all the reasons you're saying, mm-hmm. it implies a lot of things that aren't, yeah. aren't promised to us necessarily. Um, yeah, because because there is the opposite. Like we just got being buried. Like sometimes I think it, for some people they actually do need to be told to move on. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you need to be very sensitive about it, but but there's there's yeah. such a thing as looking making it precious for decades yeah. and decades yeah. about something that you like. You know what? Mm-hmm. It's time to 
Mm-hmm. Move on, whether closure is the right word or not. Like, yeah. It's, it's time to stop deciding to, to pitch your tent in the valley of death. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's time to. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Esther? Yeah. yeah, this is, I mean, this is going off of what Ben said, I think, a bit with, like, the word being just problematic in itself, and, and some, I don't know exactly what people have said, that maybe they just quite a few comments ago, but I was just trying to think about, like, what, when we do look to our future, like, uh, you know, you mentioned, like, what kinds of words are used for that, and early on in our conversation, in the discussion time, I thought about where it talks about uh, the verse that says, you know, he who began a good work and he will carry it on to completion. So this idea of, like, completion, that's, like, a biblical idea, or, which has to do with, you know, our sinfulness, um, like, sanctification, um, I think. But also these ideas of, like, fullness and, and even perfection, and the, and the biblical idea of perfection not being static, but actually being a dynamic growing thing. Um, closure just seems like a very small box, <laughs> literally, like to close something, or like a small yeah. version. Where, in, I mean, in Revelation, um, the door is open. Like, yeah. John sees a door open, and mm-hmm. he sees heaven, he sees the wall in front of the scroll, all of those things. There's actually an idea of like opening into this vision of completeness and mm-hmm. fullness. Um, I just think some of those terms are maybe imagining something more helpful. Mm. I don't know. I don't know yeah. Like that, yeah, no, no. No, I think that's... Yeah, because it's... Yeah, I just think there's a lot packaged implicitly into what closure is, where it sounds like the words you used are just... There's other other more, more gracious <laughs> concepts... Like kind of built into some of those other words. So no, I think your point is, yeah, well taken. Yeah, John. So the earlier part of the lecture on having arrived yet for me, it's and, and for anyone who knows my story, it's it's marriage, something I've been longing for. <coughs> so what would happen is I would date someone, it didn't work out. I'd be sad, and then I'd date somebody, and then it hit a point where I was like, this is just gonna, this is, it might not happen, you know. So. Um, so there's like an element of despair there, but um, you know, people, like some people say, well, you're a little closer, you know. So that was somewhat helpful, but um, I think I, I my favorite artist is uh, like a music artist, singer songwriter is John Foreman. He's the lead singer of a band called Switchfoot, and he has a solo song called "The Cure for Pain." So I saw the title and I had a like high hopes for the song. <laughs> and and uh, the opening line to it is, I'm not sure why it always goes downhill. And then he goes on to say, why broken cisterns never could be filled. So that's kind of helped me, like this idea of like a broken cistern never can be filled. So, But um, anyway, the, the answer to the title is basically there is no cure for pain. <laughs> Yes, uh, and then the whole idea of that term we use a lot in the story of my life, you know, Mm -hmm. like when something doesn't work out or whatever, it's like, oh, that's the story of my life, and and I feel like that really discounts what 
costuming in our life and what we learned in that season. So I've been trying to like avoid that term. Yeah, I think sometimes what's going on is sort of um, it's not always things we notice, like God's working sort of uh, below our radar, like with, with within us sometimes in ways that eventually surprise us. Um, my ex- my experience of sanctification is sometimes being surprised that I'm not more angry or that I didn't explode uh, when something bad. I'm like, oh, huh. <laughs> like, like, wow, look at that. <laughs> like, and, yeah, realizing, like, well, I mean, some of that is because uh, there's a lot of times where I've said, like, Lord, I'm, like, well, or to my kids, to my to my wife, to whoever, like, I'm sorry, and I was wrong, and will you forgive me? And, yeah, eventually that begins to work <laughs> below, but, yeah, I don't know, yeah, to say that's the story of my life, um, yeah, it can be, um, Well, it's easy you know. to, like, it's, when, if it's failure for a project or work or whatever, it's easy to get caught in that cycle, like, oh, it just never works out, or, yeah, yeah. I wonder. I feel like I have something else, but yeah, Peter. Going back to the uh, funeral and uh, party, I mean, that that, that it seems to be a paraphrase of uh, better to enter the house of mourning than into the house of birth uh, from from Ecclesiastes. Yeah. There is something very humane about that, which which I like. Uh, but also, uh, to, to just two other remarks, uh, I think I mentioned it before, if you ever have a chance to read Drew Faust's This Republic of Suffering, which is a study of death uh, during the Civil War, or following the Civil War, and uh, it sort of fits in with this idea of closure, because basically she makes the argument that there was a sea change in our collective view of heaven, uh, oh, yeah. from the yeah. beatific vision yeah. to okay. this family reunion yeah. as a way of trying to cope with uh, yeah. with uh, this just immensity of death that has seemed to surround us. So we kind of just set aside centuries of what Christians often thought of as being heaven yeah. and brought in this picnic uh, version of mm. it. And, and I think that that was sort of an attempt to kind of deal with uh, something that was just in some ways incomprehensible. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I think has sort of a pastoral appeal to it. But, yeah. But I, I think what we're still kind of living with the, uh, with the, the fallout of, of that. Yeah. And then, and then j- just finally go, going to a uh, you know, um, a, a picture of the Christian life. I think we do sometimes have a vision of it, and I can say for myself uh, that far. You know, aside from certain periods of time, to just delightful periods of time in my life, my relationship with God has been primarily contentious, mm. that, uh, and that just seems to be the way it is and uh, so uh, 
this idea of achieving kind of this irenic uh, vision of life, I've just said, no, it's not in the offing. God and I are just going to go at it uh, between now and whenever. And, and I'm fine. <laughs> well, I hope for more seasons of just uh, delight and uh, also just like, know, yeah, knowing your, your God's you know, beloved child. And, like, yeah. Yeah. When, when it happens, it's, it's very yeah. welcome. Yeah. But, but I just kind of figured that's... It, I, I think we delegitimize that kind of uh, idea like Moses. Yeah. You know, he, he, he was not exactly at peace with no. Yahweh. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, first, Abigail, then Marty. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I just wanted to necessity of, of space for the process because um, like I've had a couple points in my life where there was a loss and then it was followed by a lot of unwanted like space mm-hmm. and um, and like looking back on it I see it as like the Lord's mercy that he um, he canceled things he <laughs> um our family went through a loss and then like two weeks later I was at school but it was like fall of 2020 so it was like nothing happening on campus and so it's all of this unwanted time um and uh and the Lord used that time um so I feel like whether we make space for it or not I mean maybe sometimes like we do need to be reminded to make space um, for the process, not necessarily to a specific end of closing something, mm. but actually to allow him to, to go about a deep work in that time. Um, mm. And uh, and also, like, I mean, I like that we're talking about uh, just, like, our life experience of suffering and loss, because I think um, with the internet, with social media, like, we have access to see a lot of suffering and a mm-hmm. lot of loss that's like way too much to handle personally. Yeah. But yeah. there's a, a big temptation to take that on and <coughs> actually our lives aren't structured with enough space to process everything that's coming at us. Yeah. <coughs> so, yeah, I, I think that um, there's a... Yeah, just something to... I mean, we're talking about like how limited we are. Yeah, like we can't, we can't handle all the suffering of the world. You know? mm-hmm. um, not that we need to shut it off and, and like not not look at any news or not know about anything that's going on. But I think, I think that that's also like influenced our brains to when it's a personal suffering and a personal loss, like that. Um, I don't know, move on to the next thing because that's what we've done with these other losses we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's strange because, yeah, you sort of unintentionally train yourself to just, like, oh, well, like, scroll the next thing. Or, or, yeah, also just the, yeah, the phenomenon of, like, well, how, how can I complain or be upset about anything that's going on in my life when I see whatever number of massive 
evils and justices and terrible things happening elsewhere, which is not healthy. <laughs> like, in comparative suffering, there's always something worse, and then you'll, you'll never actually deal with the pain in your own life. You always just minimize it and push it aside. Um, and Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers says that's like trying to hold a, like holding a, like a, not a balloon, but like a ball, a beach ball, yeah, underwater in a pool. You know, you're trying to hold it and eventually it's just gonna like pop out somewhere, but usually not where you want it to go. Um, so yeah, I think there is, there are some, un, there's some particular, particularities of living in an age of just nonstop news and access to news all the time that um, yeah we I think I know I need a better job to to know what to do with because it's like the same device that I scroll to find like scores on is the device that tells me some horrible thing happened or and it's just yeah I don't know how to take it all like yeah I haven't figured this out Marty, were you going to say something? Yeah, um, you know, it's been a really helpful couple of talk minutes. I just had that grief just brought back um, the experience that I had because I, I was very close to my grandmother with my grandmother. And I was in college and I had a lot of And my parents didn't know that I was going to play. And so I saw, I, I went home and I saw her. I'm so clueless.
Thank you for sharing, because that's, yeah, I think those, those are, like, those are important stories to hear. There's so many stories uh, about grief are sort of like, um, well, like recovery stories, or closure stories, like, I got through this, and I, and, you know, I think, I, yeah, emotions are still a mystery to me, but I think um, often both positive and negative emotions are... (laughs) connected to things we really value and like the grief you have is appropriate or have or had and have is appropriate because you loved your grandmother like and you loved her a lot and like to not have any grief I mean this is the thing about like um, all the problems that like happen in the world like I don't know how to feel sad because it's like I don't I actually never really thought about this place until I found out it's like being bombed and burned and people are and like I'm sad about that like I I want, you know, pray about it and want our senators to, you know, help shut it down or whatever, but like, like I just don't, I don't have any emotional investment there, but I, like, you had a lot of emotional investment in someone who's very close to you, like, you love them, you loved your grandmother, and so grief, as difficult as it is, tells you, like, this is where you, in, like, you invested uh, value and care, and um, I think, going back to the Tish quote, that's like the cost of being emotionally alive and being vulnerable creatures. Um, but anyway, th- yeah, thank you for sharing, Marty. Unless anyone else has anything they want to say, that could be a good good spot to call it a night. Okay, great. Thank you all. Thanks a lot. Thank you.